Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. Oh, you seem a little, a little exasperated. Was that frustration I heard in your voice? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exhaustion? February always sucks for so many reasons. And this year, I was like, I will not feel like February sucks. I will embrace the winter. I will embrace the snow and the cold. And I will not be angry at February this year. And I was doing super, super well. Until uh, 17 days of a fucking trucker occupation and occupations all across Canada took over everybody's life. And then I was like, oh, it's February. (laughs) But then I went to Bonhomme's Palace today in Quebec City. So that was cool. I got to see his bed and I got to see his fridge, which is full of ice cream. It was pretty nice. (laughs) Classic. Well, that's cool. (laughs) I I really enjoyed the spaces that we held, uh, or the space, I suppose, like, how do you refer to that, to the Twitter space? I don't know. That we held this week, Um, despite a few little bugginesses, I think it was good. Nora and I had a a secret um, goal to make it feel as though it was an organizing meeting for people so that you would have the experience of being at an organizing meeting. And we have gotten such great feedback. So thank you to all of you who tuned in. And uh, at the current count right now, over 7,000 people have listened to that. And I hope it inspired. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I hope it inspired some of the actions that we were seeing this week. And I really want to thank all of the people who participated and even the people who couldn't participate, many of whom have sent me DMs that I haven't had the opportunity to respond to just because I'm so busy, but I have seen them. So thank you uh, for joining us and for being a part of it. It makes us think that maybe we should do more of these spaces at some point in the future. I don't know. What do you think, Nora? Yeah, especially considering how easy it was. I mean, this is kind of like the the secret behind Sandy and Nora. Um, everything kind of has to be really easy for us because of how busy we both are. And the idea of setting up something like Zoom where you're like, oh, my God, okay, people have to be invited. Oh, my God, what happened? We get Zoom bombed, all this kind of stuff um, is a bit daunting. But to just call in on our phones and to do that for 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 a couple of hours, that seemed seemed like it was pretty much maximum impact for the amount of work that we had to do for it. So I think it's a good idea to do it again. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll figure that out. We'll do it again at some point. But for now, we'll start with uh, saying more thank yous to the people who are supporting us through the Patreon. Yes, this week we have to say thank you to Tori, Diehard3, Benjamin, Clawitz, Gigi, Tim, Vanessa, and Joel. Thank you so, so much for your support. Thank you. Okay, so we have a few things that we want to talk about today. We're kind of going to do a little bit of a COVID, trucker protests, vaccine mandates, like all all of it, just kind of a little bit of a roundup of where we're at right now. So where should we start, Nora? Well, I want to start by shouting out some of the amazing actions that have happened in the past week, because last week we were talking about how things were looking a little bit bleak in terms of the fight back to these protests. 
Um, and so in the past week, there has been just incredible actions taken uh, all across this country. I hope folks have seen the pictures from Edmonton where protesters blocked the convoy and then were also threatened with uh, arrest for blocking critical infrastructure. And shout out to Emma Jackson, who was saying that that critical road in- infrastructure just led to a golf course. So um, good work, Edmonton Police, on knowing what side you are on. And we should all take note of that. And there were protests in Winnipeg and Halifax and other parts of Canada and Ottawa. Man, Ottawa has been protesting all weekend. Um, And today was confronting directly uh, a group of convoy convoyards, I guess we would say in French. Not actually at all, but it's kind of how it works. And um, it just looked amazing. It looked totally, totally awesome. People looked really empowered and uh, happy and, um, frankly, powerful and fed up. It is fantastic. And as you mentioned, um, the police, I just want to, I feel like I should write about this. Maybe I will. But I just want to say, like, there, there's been all of these, um, the public intellectuals and folks that you um, generally hear from at this time, who at times of like political unrest, who've been saying like, oh, my gosh, this is like so confusing that the police just didn't do what they were supposed to do. And Mm-hmm. I just want to say, like, this is a really great example of something that um, folks who have been active in the movement for Black Lives, talking about police abolition, have said for so long. It's like, um, those for those of you who are, like, really supportive of the police, often it's because you never interact with the police. And if you were, if you were to interact with the police, you would learn that they are actually ridiculous and not good at Mm -hmm. anything that they say that they're supposed to be doing. And this is one of those moments where it feels like everyone is uh, being is able to now see the police and see what they do and um, how they interact with people. And it's like, the very same justifications they use for targeting and harming indigenous and black people, you know, that we are too dangerous, that we need to be watched, that we need to be surveilled, is the same justifications they're using for not doing anything to this group of people who have been organized by white supremacists, is that it's too dangerous to do anything to them, which is funny. It's almost mm-hmm. as though it has nothing to do with whether anyone's dangerous or not, and that the purpose of policing is something different entirely. But uh, just, mm-hmm. we should no longer be surprised or confused. The police often, and throughout the pandemic, in fact, it's been very, very visible, um, are supportive of white supremacist movements and protect white supremacists uh, when they are protesting from counter-protesters. And so there's a logical extension there that they would just allow uh, this type of thing to go on because uh, it doesn't significantly threaten the state. Uh, And Uh, It's something that is in line with what policing is and where it has threatened the state economically uh, at the ambassador bridge and at the border crossings. That's where you'll start to see uh, police doing something, maybe the bare minimum, the very bare minimum. 
The bare minimum. And it's it's very interesting because in, at the Windsor border crossing, so this is a really critical border crossing to for, for goods, uh, for trade, basically. And um, and first of all, like all of the people were like, we must open the border. It's kind of like, no, no, you're missing the point. Like if this was people shutting the border down because Canada was like doing genocide still, um, which it is, it would be like absolutely up to us all to support it. One hundred percent. Right. So and we'll talk about the, 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 the demands of, of this convoy in a in a left wing perspective uh, in this show. But um the the mayor of Windsor was on the radio and he was talking about this injunction uh, that that they that they got. Uh, the auto companies got an injunction to say that they were going to remove the protesters from Ambassador Bridge. Now, it still took a lot of time after the injunction and in actually clearing the bridge. I feel like it was like three days or something, maybe maybe just a bit less, like two and a bunch of hours. Um, but the mayor says on CBC that the, inju- the injunction wasn't even necessary, that the police had the power to remove them if they wanted to. It was just that the injunction was part of the... He didn't say PR, but that's basically what it is, right? Is that they could clear it at any time and they didn't. And even when capital was being threatened, they have so much fidelity to this convoy that they say, as you mentioned, that things are too dangerous. I mean, the Ottawa police today on Sunday said that due to the illegal activity and aggressiveness of some of the convoy members, they couldn't do anything. And it's like... Police can't do anything about illegal activity. That is the first time I've heard them say that aloud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's pretty stunning. The 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 like the in addition to these injunctions, which don't really do anything, um, we've been seeing our governments and politicians start to call these states of emergency. Which also yeah. don't do anything. <laughs> it, no. It appears as though in this sort of um, iteration of civil unrest that the state of emergency is replacing the research report. You know, like how uh, when indigenous people or black people or people who are struggling for some sort of um, uh, alleviation of subjugation, Politicians will often reply with, well, great, we're going to do a study. We're going to do a like three to five year study and produce a report um, 10 years down the line, which we'll put on a shelf and everybody um, will be placated because it'll seem like we're doing something even though we're doing nothing. Um, I feel like the version of that here is is the state of emergency (laughs) and the injunctions, really, because the state of emergency it doesn't do anything. It's like we're going to give police broader powers to what? Do what they could already have done. The fines are going to be more. Oh, the fines are going to be more. Well, they actually need to find people for that to even matter. So who cares? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's just such a weird, cynical um, approach to politics, but also just exposes mm-hmm. that our politicians are again not willing to do anything in the face of of uh, this sort of um, challenge to their legitimacy which is quite frightening um, given that the organizers are 
from these really ugly movements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in one case, I mean, they were talking about new fines uh, under this injunction for stuff that is literally like 10 years in prison already in the cr- in the criminal code. Things like messing with critical infrastructure, which the Ambassador Bridge <laughs> border crossing pretty much could be could be called critical infrastructure, uh, though that that road to the golf course in Edmonton, mm, maybe maybe less. But, you know, one of the things about the pandemic has been it's it's this accelerating moment where a lot of the 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 foundational truths of society has just been have they just collapsed okay in the last week 20,000 people we hit 20,000 people who've died in residential care from a covid infection that they got in their residence okay so 20,000 people at a time i mean these numbers are now increasing but the day that we hit 20,000 uh, was not i think a day after or a day before we hit 35,000 overall deaths so that's like 57% of overall deaths in this country were among people who lived in facilities where they relied on others to care for them in in various ways right like the vast majority is long term care but there's also retirement residences and hospitals and assisted living facilities and prisons and shelters and group homes on that list. And I don't know, Sandy, did you see that news anywhere be announced that we've reached 20,000 deaths in these facilities? I have not. I haven't seen that anywhere. Hmm. hmm. Well, I reported it. And um, aside from me, I also didn't see it anywhere. And it's so fascinating because for the 35,000 plus people who've died in this country, um, their, their freedom's fucking over, obviously. Uh, But the people who live in those facilities, especially um, the people who got COVID and didn't die, the people living in the facilities right this minute, they have no freedom. Like most of them are at the whim of schedules and of staff and of others to decide for them. Uh, This is a part of the campaign from the Disability Justice Network of Ontario calling for uh, long-term care to be abolished. And, you know, I think we've mentioned that on this, this, this podcast before. People should definitely check out that campaign. But when we're talking about actual freedom in society, like that, that is freedom, like talking, like giving people the right to decide when they have fucking breakfast, that is freedom. And so if we want to have these kinds of conversations, if we do want to talk about what freedom looks like, what does freedom look like in a context where we all have to be you know, aware of this danger around us? Like we could have that conversation. It wouldn't take much. It would take journalists actually having that conversation or uh, covering things like 20,000 deaths in long term care. But with all of the focus on the convoy, like in every single part of this, like the the news media in this country and politicians as well, because politicians all have different ways to play it. The the entire narrative has been shifted. And so in in the last two years, we've had this pressure cooker um, experience where lots of truths have become evident to people that hadn't seen them before. And I think that in the last three weeks, other truths have become very evident for many people that didn't see them before. And the biggest truth, of course, of that is is the complete uselessness of policing in this country. And so I, I hope that people can reflect on these things um, because, you know, when the left has no capacity to talk about things like freedom, because we really are bad at talking about something like that, these words are just so easy to be taken and distorted and turned into something completely fucking different by the far right. And we're going to be playing catch up, I think, for the next little while in in explaining and, uh, you know, criticizing and deconstructing what the fuck is going on right now. And 
it doesn't help that like you know mainstream media has turned in like turned first to like CSIS fucking agents to talk about extremism and radicalization rather than you know the activists have actually tracked this for so many fucking years so anyway there's a lot to learn and I guess we'll probably be doing a lot of learn learning discussion tonight today on this episode (laughs) well yeah and one big thing that I think we have to tackle is this idea that is starting to emerge that the trucker protests are successful. That is one of the things that I think we're going to have to do some explaining about because I've seen some op-eds written and some uh, sentiments on social media that, yeah, these, these, these truckers have done it. You know, the provinces are one by one announcing the end of mask mandates, of, uh, restrictive measures um and you know here it is this is this is what's won the truckers did it what do you think Nora? (laughs) well um they definitely have good timing and if i was organizing and had the capacity to raise a million a 10 million dollars and have trucks all across canada drive to ottawa i definitely would have started to do that as omicron had peaked and started to come down because we know that these things are all cyclical and that as the measures in place work and help to keep the cases like, you know, starting to, to, to drop, you can actually time a, a campaign to be at the same time as where politicians are going to be. And so, yes, are they successful? The other timing has been super successful. Were the mandates going to be lifted anyway? I think that that's a really interesting discussion. I, I kind of feel like in Ontario, Doug Ford announced mandates ending faster Um, And I don't know if that's directly related to the convoy or if it's more related to the decisions of the premiers in Western Canada, which then, I mean, were they related to the convoy? Well, no, because they were all signaling that they were going to do this. Um, But uh, yeah, like the the timing is that they were they were strategic in that way. This was not a fucking like surprise action that just like happened to be now. Because could you imagine if they all arrived when Omicron was shooting through the fucking like the roof? It would be a very different situation. And then, of course, uh, they've been they've been aided by the police. And so if you're trying to gauge a, the success of a protest of how long it's gone on and how much attention it's gotten, I mean, you can't really compare this to anything else because there's just no other example in like the last three decades where protest movement has had the explicit and the implicit support of police that this has had. And so I think, you know, rather than being focused on whether or not they've been successful, I, I'm much more interested in trying to understand how their message fits into where we are in this pandemic. But what do you think? You're like, you're like have, have they been successful or are they tooting their own horn? Yeah, I think similarly to you, as someone who has done recruitment-based organizing before and has been in a situation, um, probably uh, on a campus, where I knew that something was about to be announced either by government or by the administration and realized that it would be good to do a some sort of campaign um, as part of showing people that we could win as a strategic um, uh, as a strategically placed uh, tactic for recruitment and for inspiring people. I recognize that right away in this in this trucker convoy. Whoever mm-hmm. the organizers were, they could have done this at any time, right? Like the, these folks didn't get organized just yesterday. They, there have been protests throughout the pandemic 
And man, it would have been easier for them to do it in the summer. But I think there's a reason why this particular moment was picked <laughs> to do this, to do this, uh, this action, because it's clear that, you know, as Nora has said, I put, bef- put it before on this podcast, all of this will end eventually. All of this will end. It makes sense to, as an organizer, strategically place an action that calls for all of this to end at a time when it seems as though there's going to be some major shifts. And I, you know, just looking across uh, what governments everywhere are doing, I mean, uh, our mask mandates in Los Angeles end this week, and that was announced weeks ago. Uh, You know, just looking at the numbers, knowing that Omicron uh, and how it's been discussed as milder uh, and, but also, you know, uh, more transmissible and what that how that impacts the population, I think that now was a perfect time to decide to do an action. I don't think that that was kismet. I don't think it was luck. I think it was, uh, you know, I give I give the organizers more credit than that. Um, I think it was strategic. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's that's very interesting because, of course, the dominant narrative coming out of um, coming out of the media is that this was not a strategic event. That that these people are not strategic, that they're, you know, random somewhat, that they're definitely not organized. As journalists would be saying, oh, they just shut down a border, another border crossing. Hmm, that's, that's a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> what a hilarious bunch of um, randomly successful bun- bumbling idiots, I suppose, is <laughs> what we're supposed to believe. But I think yeah. the danger in attributing the, um, uh, the dissolution of these mandates to the the protests are, of course, then people are like, man, this is a way forward. Like these guys, these people who are organizing, I want to know who these are, people are because they have been um, a success for the average person. That is what is being presented to us, that in the face of grand government failures to protect working people, to protect small businesses, to protect uh, people who are uh, more at risk uh, at this time. Like, we've got the this trucker protest that makes government move where no one else has been able to make government move. And that is dangerous. So it's important for us on the left to understand that it was very likely not the pressure it was probably just the science and where we are at. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's talk about some of the contradictions, because I think that there are so many contradictions in this whole situation that it's very easy for the for the folks on the convoy side to try and own all of the you guys are all hypocrites and we're the only ones talking about freedom kind of narrative. Um, because, you know, it's it's one thing to have everybody line up against the convoy. And certainly... That's been the way that it has been reported that, you know, this is a a group of people that you want to line up against. And I think that makes a lot of sense. But we are not on the same side. If we're lining up against the convoy, the folks on either side of us are not necessarily actually on our side. And those contradictions, I think, have have made it very difficult um, 
to to see through a lot of what is going on and how much of the narrative has been completely torqued. And and partly what I'm thinking of is, you know, the fact that Bill Blair, who's the, the federal minister of emergency preparedness, is the one who's apparently going to be coming up with a plan to clear the protests across the country. And it's like, Sandy, Bill Blair, Bill Blair is the federal minister of emergency preparedness. Where have you heard that name before? Bill Blair, formerly top cop in the city of Toronto and destroyer of communities of color through his approach uh, to racist policing. That's the guy. That's the guy planning emergency preparedness. Hmm. Yeah. And and so I also know him as being the police guy in charge of the G20, where, of course, 1,100 people were arbitrarily arrested and detained and uh, people were beaten by police and police stood back and both did nothing, but then also beat the fuck out of us. <laughs> and so I was like, OK, mm-hmm. um, what what's happening here? This is very weird. So these are the liberals. That's the that's the that's the liberal side of this, right? And and the liberals have been working very hard to keep themselves in opposition to this convoy to be like, we're pro-science, they're anti-science, we're not racist, they're racist or whatever. And this is where I think that the left needs to be very very nuanced and clever about how we position ourselves in relation to this entire fucking mess. Because when I see all these signs that say fuck Trudeau, I don't instantly go, oh, my God, that's so mean. I'm like, yeah, fuck Trudeau. Actually, I hate him more than you guys do. I mean, I think I do, although I don't know if I'd give up three weeks in Ottawa to fucking demonstrate how much I hate Trudeau because I also hate Ottawa. So it's hard to say. But it's a message that like should not be owned by the far right. You know, <laughs> it's like no one should like Justin Trudeau. The government, as we've said many, many times on this show, has done fuck all to make sure that people have what they need and they're 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 taken care of, they're protected to whatever extent is possible from this virus. And it's that level of nuance that we need to inject in the conversation when we're thinking about things like mandates. So last week I was uh, I got to interview two uh, fans of the show. So I'll say, hey, guys, I won't name them because um, they were talking to me in the context of their uh, their employment. And they were telling me that in their workplace, which is not a healthcare workplace, um, they have a vaccine mandate and they have to give their medical records to a company in the United States, the head office of their company to prove that they've been vaccinated. And when you have a company that cares fuck all about your personal well-being, that doesn't give you paid sick days, that doesn't give you any mental health days, and that it says either you give us your fucking per, like private medical records or we're firing you and also, oh, they're, we're sending them to a fucking another country where you're going to be subject to other fucking laws. Yeah, in that context, I'm pretty much like, hmm, the mandates, hmm. I'm I'm not I'm not going to be blanket pro mandate in that situation, <laughs> you know. I'm I'm not going to be blanket pro mandate forever. So like what's the exit strategy of this situation? Or what happens when you're a worker who has absolutely no contact with people? You know, I know someone else who's very, very, very anti-vaccine, um, uh, very anti-vaccine, uh, and is a federal public service, a pub- pub- federal public servant, and has been working at home for two years and will continue to work from home. And she's like, why the fuck do I need to get vaccinated? Like, why? So, you know, there's like, there's questions about losing people's, people losing their jobs, and, and are these actually effective? Or are we taking hygiene theater to a level where people are going to have their jobs and their livelihoods threatened for almost no gain, 
right? It's like there's quite a difference between saying, look, you can't go to the movies, you can't go to the bar, you can't play uh, sports unless you're vaccinated or you can't fucking work from your home office. I think one of the things that you are spelling out here uh, that's a big problem is that we've staked our like political positions, our political identities, I suppose, which I, I don't even like putting those two words together, but it's just how things are manifesting in this 2022 time. Um, we've, we staked who we are politically on medical tactics to address a situation, <laughs> which, which is a really short-sighted and poor thing to do. We should always be staking our political identities, who we are, in principles, in principles that make sense. And the principles that make sense um, that support vaccine mandates at one point and then don't support vaccine mandates or don't support certain restrictions uh, as time goes on are principles that support people's safety, that supports their health and supports our ability to live uh, with, with one another communally. But to stake a political identity on getting vaccinated, one, or um, accepting restrictions carte blanche, that's very dangerous because, mm -hmm. of course, these tactics have to shift and change as the medical situation that we find ourselves in um, shifts and change changes. And we have to be politically um, astute enough to recognize what moment we are at. And we are coming to a moment um, if we've not already entered that moment where some of these restrictions no longer make sense, where we cannot just keep doing what Justin Trudeau is doing and blaming any change in the way that we live in 2022 versus the way that we lived in 2019 is the fault of people who refuse to get vaccinated. Like, <laughs> let's, let's, we were never going to hit 100%. We're as close as it probably gets. So at mm -hmm. this point now, what is, how are we shifting? What are we changing? What does our politic look like now that we are um, on the other side of a grand project to get as many people um, as safe as possible through uh, vaccines, masks, uh, restrictions, uh, support additional economic supports. Um, what what should the primary goals be now? And we should be shifting to, I think, critiquing some of these restrictions and demanding more support for people who have been um, severely harmed during the course of this pandemic, economically and health wise. Yeah, and I think you know it's it's really difficult because I think that you know. Even after everything we've seen in the last two years, there's still a feeling out there, and certainly it's not shared by everybody, but there's still a feeling out there that we should be able to trust our politicians to do the right thing. <laughs> yeah. And we cannot. <laughs> like, Scott Moe and Jason Kenney will never do, they're not going to remove the restrictions because science says to remove those restrictions. They're going to do it because they've, they're fucking like, yeah, it's time to, like, let's just let her rip. You know, that 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 is going to be the case. And so then the question becomes, what is the way in which we are able to put forward a left wing vision and critique 
of where we're at right now. And it's it's difficult, right? Because like I've written a fucking book doing this. And like, you know, the book has gotten some attention, but like fuck all from the fucking people that actually have power in this country, whether politicians or media. And so like I'm I'm also sitting here going, fuck, like how do we mount this critical progressive or left wing uh, set of demands as we start to open up without instantly saying, whoa, 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 we can't open up because it's like, fuck, like this entire pandemic, the m- pandemic management has been based on vaccination, which many, many people, us included, have been saying from the fucking start, from before the start, that that is not going to save us. It's not the right way to get us out of this pandemic. Now, Many of the measures that were put into place, like a lot of vaccine mandates for um, for different activities and, and, and vaccine mandates at, at some places of work, they have gotten us to a level of vaccination that is really great. And, you know, I have a family member who's like in the hospital right now and uh, is unvaccinated and is going to probably go get their first dose like in a month when they're out of the hospital and able to. There will still be people that are that are that are going to get their first doses. And we still need to have an aggressive like that, that last mile um, campaign to get people vaccinated. For sure, that still needs to happen. But the obsession with vaccines, like all this has done is turned this entire debate into terms that the fucking far right have been juicing since May 2020, even earlier than that, since basically we started to talk about vaccines. And politicians using vaccines as their, as their primary tool to help us rather than giving support, giving paid days off, uh, better data collection and fucking actual testing regimes, right? All of this stuff, which is fucking necessary if we're going to open up. And so, you know, we have to figure out how to extract ourselves from this fucking frame because this is a fucking shit frame. This is a frame where the left doesn't exist. It has no footing. There's no ability to really fucking say anything. And then we find ourselves with like all these Americans being like, whoa, the left should be backing up the fucking convoy. And it's like, who the fuck are you? Like, just because you can barely locate Canada on a map doesn't mean that you have a fucking opinion that matters, my friend. Um, and so, you know, how, how, how do we do that? I guess we've got a little bit of time left in the show. And we can talk about how we do this, but this is where like, we have to, we, anybody on the left who has any kind of platform or whatever, we have to be talking about this in a nuanced way because average people are going to be pulled by the rhetoric that they're hearing nonstop. And that is one of the ways in which this convoy has been very successful. They have played politicians like a fucking harp and they're fucking playing the harp alongside cops who are playing the same fucking harp and the politicians are like that tickles rather than like "Ooh, this is creeping fascism that's not good (laughs) so how do we do that like how do we inject this this critical left-wing vision of, of of a of a of a late stage pandemic existence that might very well snap back into total full-blown pandemic as well in the next fucking who knows the next wave Yes. What we need to do is to come up with some sort of platform, essentially, for the left to, as we are exiting or as we are recovering from this pandemic, um, or even if this pandemic goes the other way, if another variant comes up and and we end up in a situation where it is dangerous to to start opening up again, um, uh, we need, what regardless, we need a platform that speaks to all of the issues that people are experiencing right now, like the the 
the trucker convoy is speaking to people who have lost their businesses, who have lost lost their jobs, who are experience, experiencing financial hardship. Um, so should we. I mean, we have been doing that, but not in a very coordinated way. We should be talking about strategies coming out of this uh, pandemic that is going to support uh, working class people and people who have been most harmed by the pandemic. Um, what are we going to do uh, coming out of this for people who are, are still experiencing that job insecurity, food insecurity, um, insecurity with respect to their shelter? Uh, are we going to start putting forward radical ideas or even ideas that don't even have to be that radical. Like, you know, a four day work week is not that radical. Um, one sick day a month. Hell, let's make it two. <laughs> 24 sick days. You know, like these, a platform of things that are going to address the issues that people, average people are experiencing and um, that are unapologetic in demanding them. Like, I... You know, some of the, the critique I've seen of, of the convoy of like, these guys don't even know how government works. They're so unsophisticated. Like, that's the federal government, you guys. Like, <laughs> you should be talking to the provincial government. Like, um, Nora and I have said several times on the show that it doesn't fucking matter. And I hope that people can see why it doesn't matter now. <laughs> like, yeah. it really doesn't matter. Jurisdiction is only a good argument for someone who is trying to place responsibility on someone else. <laughs> and it doesn't fucking matter. Yes, Justin Trudeau has a hand to play in this stuff. And so does to do the provinces. It doesn't matter how you approach putting the pressure on. Just put the pressure on the governments. They're all responsible for this shit. And we should be unapologetic in the same way. Absolutely. And a lot of the demands are out there already. Um, I think, considering what we've just gone through, calling for um, just an, an explosion in time off, as you say, two, two paid sick days a month or, or something. I think that that's really, really key and that we need to un, like remove ourselves from what does seem politically possible. Like enough of the fucking bureaucratic demands for... I don't know. Like even saying 10 paid sick days to me is a little bit too bureaucratic. It's like, no, fucking just paid sick days, like tons, tons and tons and tons of paid sick days, all the fucking paid sick days that we fucking need. We should be given them. And then there's the the very obvious things that are directly related to the impact of this pandemic, which are supports for disabled people, abolishing long term care. And then let's not forget the opioid crisis. And so all of the demands that activists and drug users are calling for when it comes to access to safe supply, like this stuff is really critical. And the, and the work's already been done. This is, I think, what the most important thing that we should be thinking of in 2022. I just want to add uh, to what you've just said that what I think is uh, so critical coming out of this, but also through this, has been the politicization of like the medical class. Of course, there has always been uh, really political folks who have been involved in medicine, but I feel like that has exploded now. There's been, um, you know, for years, this kind of idea that if you are a doctor, you're in a neutral you're like in a neutral uh, profession. If you're a nurse, you're in a neutral pr pr profession. If you provide healthcare in some way, that is a neutral profession that does not get involved in politics. And that has been, people have been disabused 
of that idea significantly in the last few years. And I think that there should be, um, you know, a lot of support for the sort of entrenchment of uh, of people who are uh, providing health care in politics. It's so important. These voices are very critical to so much, so much in our world, whether it's a pandemic or just even literally the idea of sick days that should be jointly called for by, you know, well, certainly everyone, but of course, unions and uh, people who provide health care. And uh, I would really love to see um, support for uh, the continued politicization of people um, who provide care and perhaps a little bit even more boldness from people who are providing care um, in uh, in making the sorts of calls uh, that our society needs in order to be well. Yeah, I, I would, though, be um, amiss to not mention that uh, the three at the time that our health system was being absolutely fucked, our minister of health our minister of finance and our premier were all doctors. <laughs> so I, huh. I, I, I would say that we also have to really um, call out and fucking fight with um, the right wing doctors who who know actually the harm that they that they can um, that they can rain down on people because they have a, a, a vaulted position within society. If we're going to learn things from the trucker convoy, it is to be ridiculous in how bold we are. And I think that that really can't be stated enough that when we're making demands that we that we don't worry about whether or not the fucking liberals will be like, that's an unrealistic demand. It's like, no, no, the liberals are irrelevant. This is this is, I think, that the key issue of this moment. We are seeing like the old parties and we've seen the old parties for many years, like just start to collapse into irrelevance and they feel that and they are going to be doing everything they can to hold on to their power while political forces are going to shift within society. And um, and we're going to see some I think we're going to see some parts of society of capital within society finding themselves aligned with the convoy message because they can tell that there's that there is some power that's possible through that path right when we say that there are fascists among them it's not to be hyperbolic it's to say like to point out fucking reality and if um if anybody who has money in this country and is sympathetic to that kind of politic they're going to rush behind these people and actually be more bold in how they support them especially considering how the police have and and members of the military are becoming more and more emboldened to support them and so the like it has never been more important for us to 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 look local and we've talked about maybe doing another twitter space to actually start connecting people to to do some of this work but it's never been more critical to actually do the groundwork necessary in our communities to to get people to say not just we want X, Y, Z, but we fucking will take X, Y, and Z because we've lost total faith in the way that the system is operating and we will force our politicians to actually start doing something useful. And I think that Ottawa is going to be ground zero of this. I don't mean Ottawa in the, in the parliamentary sense, but I mean the city of Ottawa. You know, I saw someone calling for the government to like pay people who've had to, who've lost business in the last three weeks uh, because their shops have been closed or whatever. And it's like, we have to stop asking the government to do stuff because fuck the government. They fucking let this happen. The question that I have is why would anyone have to pay rent? Like what the fuck landlord is going to make any money off of the last three weeks in Ottawa when everything's shut down? 
right? What the fuck landlord has to get rent every single month? No one. No one needs to get rent every single month. It's a fucking parasitic fucking system. And oh, also it's an entirely parasitic system that's like commodified how the majority of Canadians live. So um, that kind of thing, we need to really be fucking punching against this tendency to, to appeal to people in power, to appeal to liberals, to appeal to the NDP. I mean, they don't really have power, but you know what I mean? Uh, appeal to a government, a figure like Doug fucking Ford, the guy's not going to do anything. Just get that out of your head. Just completely get that the fuck out of your head. Because until we untether ourselves from these structures, we will not be able to actually have the impact that I think that we need. And I think that that is partly why we've just felt such powerlessness in the last two decades, because we have been powerless, because we keep trying to fight the government as if they're going to do something good. And they, they are functionally incapable of doing something good. So that has to be our task. How do we operationalize untethering ourselves from these fucking structures while these structures remain the people that hold power for now? Well, damn, Nora. <laughs> Those are some marching orders. It took it took 45 minutes to jump up to that. But fuck, there we are. <laughs> but there we are. And I, you know, I don't really have anything else to add to that. I think that that is where we are. These politicians are never going to do these things out of the goodness of their heart these the the stuff that we need that will that will help support average people um, living dignified lives need to be demanded they need to be called for and they need to be demanded boldly and in a way that gets mass support and that is our task so onward (laughs) 